Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll be looking at that chilly Wyoming weather. In Potpourri, we'll be talking about eggs and Wyoming's loss of a great, caring person. In sports, we'll look at what took place in territorial days for people to pass their time. And finally, we'll look at the last Indian battle in Wyoming. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here today on the 30th day of January. One more day to go, and we'll be into February. I guess, as I said last week, our weather here in Wyoming is nothing but cold and kind of miserable. We had a miserable weekend with snow. We got maybe anywhere from six to eight inches. It depended on where you were, but it was cold. The wind blew, and it was just a miserable weekend. Good weekend to be inside. It affected our state. Most of the sporting events for high school events were canceled throughout the state because of travel issues. But here on Monday morning, Overnight, here in Hot Springs County, we got to negative 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Right now, it's at about 1130. It's at minus 9 out still. But one good thing about it, a warming trend is in the forecast. Looks like our temperatures are going to start to moderate. And I do see some 30s coming up over the weekend. And so this cold front's going to move out. One thing, we're not uh, on our own on this. Pretty much majority of the country in the west, the northwest, and this really went farther than I thought it would, but the temperatures have been really bad, and I know other parts of the country have been getting more severe weather. So again, weather is continuing cold. Looks like right now that, uh, again, as I said, weather's going to moderate. That's good news for travel. I know over the weekend, there were some major issues on I-80, our interstate route on the southern part of the state that goes east to west or west to east. They had multiple, multiple pile-ups on that road, and they get the semis on there, and there's a lot of traffic, and somebody has an issue, and pretty soon it's a lot of people having an issue. So it was rather a trying weekend for all those people that are involved in the Department of Transportation, the emergency response, the highway patrol. Hats off to everyone that was out there trying to take care of these accidents. They were just uh, an absolute quagmire. It shut everything down. But these people are out there trying to take care of this. And when you have multiple accidents, it's just unbelievable getting people out there. And we had had here, a, a before Christmas, a responder down by Rollins was out on an accident, and he was hit and killed. So there is some issues with this. But again, hats off to our highway department our snowplow drivers, the highway patrol, all the people that are involved. Just slow down out there. I guess that's the biggest thing to do. Just slow down. If you don't need to go, don't go. Stay home. The weather will change and it'll improve. You'll have a little better chance of on your travel to avoid issues. But again, winter weather continues on here in Wyoming. In Wyoming, potpourri, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. This coming Thursday is Groundhog's Day. We'll find out how much longer winter's going to last. I have a feeling that we're going to have more winter. Of course, we don't have any groundhogs here in the state of Wyoming. We might have prairie dogs, maybe a woodchuck, or maybe a badger. 
But again, Groundhog's Day is coming up Thursday. We talk about eggs, and it gets getting rather interesting here with the price of eggs. Everybody's feeling the pain, especially if you like eggs. And I saw over the weekend the third largest egg production facility here in the U.S. was burned down, was destroyed. And it's just another issue that's came up with our food supply. And I can only imagine what this is going to do now for the eggs, uh, egg supply. I told somebody the other day that I have eggs at, uh, here at the house. I do have chickens, and they do lay golden eggs. And I guess that's 100% true, uh, the way prices are going. I may be able to just sell the eggs and just totally retire just in the egg business. But, again, it's kind of unusual. And I did see a, a, some statistics in the year 2022, just for just general information. There were 23 food processing plants were destroyed in the U.S. They had some type of fire or problem that they were destroyed. And that was in 2022, and they were showing through time there has never been anything even close to any of the numbers. And I don't know what's going on, why these facilities are suddenly out there having these issues. And every time one of these happen, it's affecting our food chain here in the U.S. So just one of those things you may just want to think about sometime. And, and again, take a look for yourself. It's all out there in the news. And you can find all these facts. And it's maybe something to keep track of. But again, all I know is, is that I guess maybe if you're going to go out and have eggs and bacon at the local restaurant in the morning. They may be uh, prohibitive to get. You may have to go for oatmeal or something healthier. I have no idea, but I know at our house, I've got eggs. And finally today, a bit of bad news here for the state of Wyoming. Susie McMurray passed away over the weekend. She was a very caring person, quite a, quite a history that she had, her and her husband, Mick McMurray. They were definitely a generous sort. They did so many things for the state of Wyoming. Husband, of course, Mick McMurray, he passed away in 2015. It's kind of a sad day. Again, she was 76, had a battle with diabetes, finally took her life. But again, the amount of money and, and what they've done for the state of Wyoming is just unbelievable. And our thoughts and prayers definitely go out to the, to the McMurray family. Taking a look at Wyoming sports. Again, as I said in our weather section, not a lot of sporting events here in the state as far as the high school level. There were high school events Friday night, but Saturday night, everything was pretty much canceled. I think there were six total games that I saw that actually were played. So again, weather has an effect, but the season continues on, and that's just part of Wyoming sports. The travel is always the interesting part, putting kids on the yellow buses and taking them across the state. But I wanted to take a look at what they did in territorial Wyoming. And referring to the history of Wyoming from T.A. Larson, it's some interesting things I learned. Rodeos, which have become such an important form of entertainment in the 20th century, were rare and unimportant in the territorial days. Informal riding and roping contests, it is true, were held on the range and at scattered ranches and constituted an important part of cowboy amusement. But in the entertainment world of the great majority of people, they weren't very important. Baseball was more important. True, the playing season was short. Free time was limited. Towns were far apart, and no attempt was made to organize leagues. Yet many communities had Sunday baseball. Church members objected to Sunday baseball, but they could not 
prevent it, and most people accepted the 1887 view of editor John F. Carroll of the Cheyenne Leader. The enlightened public sentiment of this country is not inclined to approve of blue laws of any kind. Football only received slight attention. Beginning in the later 1880s, Rock Springs pioneered in organizing public support for this new game, raising $75 to outfit one of its teams in August of 1888. A favorite pastime for the youth and a few grown-ups was roller skating. Cheyenne had a rink in February of 1872, at which time the leader described roller skating as a moral and exhilarating diversion. Thirteen years later, in March and April of 1885, the sport aroused the ire of editor Hayford in Laramie. He observed that the roller skating rink has become such a mania throughout the country that the voice of the press, the pulpit, and the medical facility has been raised in warning. Among other things, Harford charged that it brings the virtuous and innocent into contact with and under the influence of the rake and libertine and scores of virtuous women have fallen by these influence. He was unable to stop the sport, which persisted into the days of statehood, indoors and out, though never again with the enthusiasm of the winter of 1884-85. Buffalo in 1885 had two busy rinks where soldiers and Crow Indians mingled with the townspeople. Cheyenne and Laramie had cycling, and then they argued in the 1890s about which had the older bicycle club. Evidently, Cheyenne won the dispute since his club was organized in April of 1882 and Laramie's in August of the same year. Cheyenne's club was heralded as the oldest club of its kind west of the Missouri River. And dancing. The men of the territory loved to dance when they could find female partners. Down in Nebraska, according to Louise Pound, the best families in the small towns and rural communities never danced in pioneer days. This was not true for Wyoming, where E.E. E. Dale's generation for the cow country as a whole is more appropriate. Dale suggested that dancing was at the two extremes of cow country society, the primitive and the sophisticated, and that churches taboo dancing. Even Dale's statement does not really fit Wyoming, where most people had no scruples about dancing. Most of them had no church affiliation, and among the church members, the Catholics, Episcopalians, and the Mormons dance, while the Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists normally did not. An interesting time in territorial Wyoming with the activities that everyone followed, but they did find ways to pass the days, and it was definitely a time that nobody would ever forget. Our history section will be bringing you a story on the Trouble at Lightning Creek, a stained page in Wyoming's history by Lori Van Pelt. Just before sunset on October 31, 1903, 18-year-old Hope Claire and Oklahoma Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota dismounted from her horse to open a gate near Lightning Creek on the dry fork of the Cheyenne River about 50 miles northeast of Douglas, Wyoming. Two little boys were with her, helping her trail some loose ponies. They had ridden ahead of several of the wagons driven by others in the group. The Indians headed back to the reservation after a trip to search for medicinal plants, and they planned to camp near the creek. But the teenager saw the white men aiming their guns at me, so I started back to the wagons as fast as I could. Shots rang out. Claire did not hear any warnings before the gunfire began. One bullet hit the horse that 11-year-old Peter White Elk rode. 
Horace fell. The boy scrambled up and started to run and then got shot. The fighting lasted no more than five minutes. Seven people, including Peter White Elk and Sheriff William Miller, died of wounds incurred during the battle. The white men that Hope Clear saw were members of a posse headed up by Miller, who was the sheriff of Weston County, Wyoming. The confrontation was in Converse County. Miller was, in fact, out of his jurisdiction. Posse members said later that they shouted warnings to the Indians to stop, but that the Indians fired first, in contrast to Clear's recollection. Miller had tried to arrest the Indians for violating state game laws the day before, but Charles Smith, the Ogallala leader of the party that Clear was traveling with, had convinced the Indians that they should return to the reservation rather than go to Newcastle, Wyoming with the sheriff. Smith, known to the Indians as Eagle Feather, had attended the Carlisle Indian School and told the sheriff that he didn't live in Newcastle and wasn't going there. One posse member recalled that the sheriff told Smith he didn't want trouble and wanted the Indians to come peacefully, but Smith replied, I know the law and I know your duty as well as you do and what they expect of you, but you can't take me. John Branahan, the U.S. Indian agent at the Pine Ridge Reservation, had granted passes to the Indians to leave the reservation for the purpose of gathering herbs, roots, and berries. He gave passes to two parties in the fall of 1903, to William Brown on September 30th and to Charles Smith on October 20th. This practice was not uncommon for Branahan. But he made it a special point, he noted later, to caution all Indians going through Wyoming and Montana not to hunt while on their trip, and instructed them to get permits from the proper officers if they did want to hunt. Hunting had been an issue for many years. The disagreements about hunting rights occurred in part because the state of Wyoming laws had been interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896 in the Ward v. Racehorse case as superior to treaty agreements made previously by the U.S. government with Indians. Concerns also arose prior to Racehorse that overkill of Wyoming game would discourage wealthy Easterners who came to the state to hunt for sport. A lack of game thus would mean decreased state income. Still another factor contributing to the increasing tensions were when, in the early 1900s, rations provided by the U.S. government for Indian living on the reservations was reduced. In October of 1903, Sheriff Miller in Newcastle received word that the Indians had been hunting illegally in southern Weston County and on the northern border of Converse County, and they had been killing cattle. According to Weston County Clerk A. L. Putman, so explicit and positive were these statements that, although no complaints had been filed by the stockmen, Sheriff Miller thought it his duty to look after the matter and put a stop to the law-breaking and to protect the property of our citizens, which it was said was being destroyed. Reports had come into the office between October 20th and October 22nd. The sheriff organized a posse of six that left Newcastle on October 23rd. The sheriff could not leave until the next day and met the posse at the prearranged place. They found some Indians near Lance Creek, disarmed them, and three of the posse members took them to Newcastle. Another man joined the main posse, which continued for several days to Black Thunder Basin, where Indians had been reported, but they had gone before the posse arrived. The posse continued until they found William Brown and Charles Smith parties on the dry fork of the Cheyenne River, north of present-day Bill, Wyoming. The Brown and Smith parties had met accidentally and were on their way back to the reservation. A broken wagon wheel 
repaired travaux style with a pole that dragged the ground left a trail that posse members followed. The lawmakers arrived at the place where the Indians were camped at about noon. William Brown's wife prepared a meal, which posse men ate as they waited for Charles Smith to return. Later that afternoon, Smith came back and had upon his horse an antelope. Miller tried to arrest them, but Smith refused to go to Newcastle, although others in the party were willing to. One posse member recalled that the sheriff read their arrest warrant to the Indians twice. The Indians broke camp, and although they were reportedly some confusion about whether the Indians were going to Newcastle, they instead went in the direction of the reservation. The sheriff and the posse decided not to follow at that time, but they warned the Indians they would be back. The lawmen then stayed at the Fiddleback Ranch about 20 miles away. The sheriff's request men from the local ranches that would join his posse. Further complicating the manner, Charles Smith and Sheriff Miller reportedly disliked each other, having exchanged words in 1901 about illegal hunting. On October 31, 1903, the sheriff's posse caught up with the Indians in the late afternoon at Lightning Creek. The Indians had traveled about 50 miles from the place where Sheriff Miller had first attempted the arrest. Some of the Ogallalas were traveling in wagons and some were riding horses. They were in a procession about a quarter to one half mile long. The approach of the sheriff and his posse after they left the road and took up up a dry gulch under the creek bed was threatening and menacing. According to a statement issued later by U.S. District Attorney for Wyoming, Timothy Burke, implying that the posse had set up for an ambush. Hope Clear, like many of the Indians that day, fled when the shooting started. Peter White Elk, the boy helping her, was shot in the head and killed instantly. Others killed were Sheriff Miller, who bled to death from a severed femoral artery about 30 minutes after the fight. Deputy Louis Falkenberg, who was shot in the neck and died instantly. Charles Smith, who died the next day. Black Kettle and Gray Bear, Susan Smith, Charles' wife, who was shot in the shoulder, died a few days later. Last bear, wounded in the neck, recovered. Miller had been moved to a nearby Mills Ranch cabin where he died. Posse members guarded the cabin throughout the night, concerned that an attack might occur. The next morning, two posse members, James Davis and Ralph Hackney, took the bodies of Miller and Falkenberg to Newcastle. Other posse members returned to the scene of the fight to search the Indian wagons and found that several Indian women had built a fire and were tending to the injured Charles Smith there. Smith was taken to the Mills cabin and a posse member, Stephen Franklin, took the women to Luss where he sought a doctor. Smith died that night. Another posse formed at Newcastle, this one organized by Crook County Sheriff Lee Mather to capture the Indians who fled the scene. Some managed to go back to the reservations. Others were arrested in Edgemont, South Dakota, charged with murder, and these men were taken to Douglas, Wyoming. The Converse County Sheriff released the women and children to the custody of Indian agent John R. Brennan. Brennan requested the release of the nine men, but Wyoming Acting Governor Fenimore Chatterton refused. A preliminary hearing, the only legal proceeding in the case, was held in Douglas, Wyoming, the county seat of Converse County. On November 14, 1903, two weeks after the confrontation, because of federal obligations to the tribes, U.S. Attorney for Wyoming, Timothy Burke, represented the Ogallalas in the state case. He did not call them to testify that day, but traveled to Pine Ridge later to take their statements, because he could not find a place to appropriate 
secrecy to take their statements in Douglas, and because he believed that the case of Weston County Prosecutor W.F. Meekham was weak. Acting Governor Chatterton, along with Wyoming Congressman Frank Mondell, who was from Newcastle, and U.S. Senator Francis E. Warren supported the posse members and were dissatisfied with the results of the hearing. Charges against the Ogallalas were dropped after the hearing, and they were released. No member of the posse was ever charged. Modell and Warren used their influence to ensure a thorough investigation was made. They hoped the publicity could help highlight the state's rights. In addition to the involvement of Burke and Special Indian Agent Charles S. McNichols, Major B.H. Cleaver of the 6th Cavalry was sent by the War Department to attend the Douglas hearing, and the President's Secretary requested that the U.S. Attorney General report to the Cabinet at its next meeting. After examining the evidence, Burke issued a detailed report wherein he questioned Sheriff Miller's legal jurisdiction to arrest the Indians. The Sheriff's warrant was issued in Weston County, Wyoming, and the arrest was attempted in Converse County. Burke also wrote that the evidence did not show that the Indians were in violation of the law, unless the testimony to be accepted that the Indian Smith, when he returned to his party at the time the Sheriff first visited them, an antelope which fact is denied by a number of the Indians in their evidence. Burke determined that the Indians were legally justified in resisting arrest under the conditions shown, but not to the extent of using deadly weapons, unless the sheriff's posse first used their guns. And as facts in such a hopeless uncertainty, I cannot believe that anything is to be gained by further prosecution. For were proceedings to be had against either party, the proper application of the rule of reasonable doubt would acquit the accused. Indian agent McNichols noted in his report that the trouble at Lightning Creek, resulting in part from a local sediment of race hatred, has stained a page in Wyoming history. Newspapers gave front-page space to the events, especially focusing on the fight and offering to, referring to the Indians as Bucks, Braves, Squaws, and Redskins. The weekly Newcastle Times on October 30th of 1903, carried an item about Miller and his posse searching for the Indians because reports had been received that several bands of Indians were scattered through the Black Thunder Basin, some 70 miles from Newcastle, and were unlawfully killing antelope and cattle. The article also stated, one witness alone said he could under oath say that he had passed five carcasses of steers killed by gunshot wounds in the country where the Indians were hunting. The Wyoming Tribune, a daily newspaper, reported on the battle in its November 2, 1903 issue. The report stated, It is probable that in the event the governor fails to call out troops, a small regiment of men will set out tomorrow morning, all bent on avenging the death of the officers. The newspaper also included information about a second battle wherein a posse formed to catch the Indians who fled Lightning Creek fight and that 10 Indians were killed. The next day, the newspaper explained they had been a little bit exaggerated in the first report and also noted that the report of a second battle was pure imaginary. The Newcastle Times, in its November 6th report, stated that, like Custer, Sheriff Miller held his ground. What matters were the odds, two to one, in the enemy's favor. What mattered were the bullets flying all around. He knew the peril and risk, and was only doing his job as an officer when, lo, a bullet struck him up high and in the left hip, severing the femoral artery, 
and breaking the bone. The Grand Encampment Herald carried a true story as told by Johnny Owen, the celebrated scout and Indian fighter. A few days later, Cheyenne, Wyoming's Tribune carried an item from the Denver News with Buffalo Bill's opinion on the Wyoming incident and the hunting rights. The famed Western showman admitted that he'd only glance over the newspaper accounts, which are not all alike. However, he believed that the tribes have a right to shoot game, not for the sake of slaughter, but for personal use. We must make allowance for the fact that they and their ancestors have lived largely by the chase. So some concessions along that line should be my way of thinking, be granted to them. But Burke, as might be expected for an attorney, gave thoughtful consideration to the evidence and further, he interpreted the language of the treaties and referred to the 1896 racehorse case. He explained, I do not find from reading of a various treaties made with the Ogallala Sioux that they had reserved any right to hunt off their reservation after the buffalo should cease to exist in numbers as to justify the chase, their treaty of 1868 being merely that they should have the right to hunt so long as the buffalo may range thereon in such numbers as to justify the chase, being an entirely different provision from the one made by the Crow and the Shoshone and other Indians, which are to the effect that they should have the right to hunt upon the unoccupied lands of the United States government so long as the game should exist in sufficient quantities to authorize the chase. The later provision, as it appears in a number of treaties, however, has been construed against the Indians' rights. In violation of state law subsequently enacting in the case of Ward Sheriff versus Racehorse, the Lightning Creek battle has been called the last blood-spilling fight between whites and American Indians in Wyoming. The conflict was not the last in the West, however. Armed skirmishes, many with bloodshed, continued intermittently until 1924. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.